Hello and welcome to a flat pack history of Sweden, your instruction manual for chronological Swedish history. I'm Elsa. I'm Chris, and this episode is episode 50, Sweet Company of Mine. I'm sorry, I'm just really pleased with that title. <laughs> yeah, it's a good title, I think. We're going to dedicate this episode with the great title to Sweden's oldest company or business, and perhaps the world's oldest still operating limited company. But first, we should just take a moment to appreciate that this is episode number 50, big five zero. Yeah, it caught us a bit by surprise almost, or at least caught me by surprise when we sat down to start the research and writing for this episode that we have actually gotten to number 50. Yeah, because we have this big planning document, a master spreadsheet that we write stuff down in and keep track of where we are with each episode and what's coming in the future. And lately we've moved some stuff around and added some more episodes to the story about the royal brothers, Birja, Eric and Valdemar and their epic feud. That took a bit longer than we thought originally. So when we looked and saw that this would mark episode 50, we thought we should just take a minute to reflect on that. Yeah, I've heard other podcasts say that episode 50 is a benchmark, that it means that you're established as a podcast and not just something that's going to come and go. Well, I know that we're very happy to have made it to 50. Um, we won't just come and go. And it's been a lot of fun. We've learnt a lot both about podcast making and Swedish history, also about working and collaborating with each other and other podcasts. Most importantly, we're of course very happy to have so many listeners. Perhaps not everyone has listened to all 50 episodes. They might be more interested in one period than another. But regardless, you're with us and you're involved and send us messages and that makes us very happy. It really does. And over the course of these 50 episodes, we've also been welcomed into this great community of podcast makers, which uh, has been wonderful because... We don't just make a podcast, we also love listening to podcasts. A special shout out to Jerry's Presidency's podcast, History Hack and the Two Guys Three Crowns podcast, who have welcomed us on their podcast, and to the organizers behind Intelligent Speech for inviting us on to give a talk there. And to Casting Through Ancient Greece, who very kindly traded promos with us. And speaking of promos, we actually have a new one for you right now. Hi there. My name's Michael Schenkman, and I'm the host of the Scandinavian History Podcast. Since you're trying to listen to an episode of a flatback history of Sweden, I'm guessing that you A. enjoy quality podcasts, and B. are into history. If so... I hope you'll consider giving the Scandinavian History Podcast a try. It's a chronological journey through the history of the five Nordic countries, Denmark, Norway, Iceland, Sweden, and Finland, as well as a few other bits and pieces here and there where it's relevant. So, if you're curious about what's going on in the countries surrounding Sweden from the Ice Age until today, don't hesitate to give the Scandinavian History Podcast a try. And now, back to the podcast you actually tuned in for. Thank you, Michael. That was really great. So uh, we've been listening to the lovely Scandinavian Histories podcast because it's sort of doing the same idea as us, but just encompassing Norway, Sweden and uh, Denmark. Yeah, it's a great podcast if you want to Yeah, just get the bigger picture of this entire region because 
well, as we see on the podcast almost in every episode, our histories are so interconnected. So if you if you are interested in Swedish history, then definitely look at Scandinavian history in general because it will add to your experience. And 50 episodes also means 50 Swedish phrases, all of which can be found on our website if you want to go back and have a look and read them and jog your memory about some of the more crazy ones. And today's phrase is a little bit crazy at first, um, and then when you look into it a bit deeper, it's even more crazy, I guess, and it's uh, food-related again. Yeah, I suppose you're right. This week's phrase is Nu är det kokta fläsket stekt. And that means, now the boiled pork is fried. Yeah, it's not actually cooking related at all. It it simply means, that's it, or now it's really bad. Uh, Like you could say, that's it. First the printer didn't work, and now my computer won't turn on. Nu är det kokta fläsket stekt. This really is one of those phrases that gets very weird when you translate it to English or think about it literally. It doesn't make much sense to walk around and say, now the boiled pork is fried. But um, maybe we should try and make that a thing in English. Um, I'm going to just say it in Swedish at work and see if anybody reacts to it. (laughs) Yeah, why not? I mean, it would be fun. But for now, should we move on with today's episode? Yes, today we're taking uh, probably a well-deserved break from the royalty and politics of the late 1200s and early 1300s that we've dedicated the last sort of half dozen episodes to, to look at a very specific thing that rises to prominence around this time, namely the Great Copper Mountain Mine, or Stora Kopperbergs Gruva, as it's called in Swedish sometimes also just referred to as Farlu Mine because of where it's located. Now, a lot of people might think that this place sounds a bit familiar to a very popular cider called Kopperberg. Um, that's because the cider Kopperberg or Kopperberg is from the town Kopperberg, which is named after the mountain and the mine, despite being about 90 kilometers away from Farlun and the mine. So yes, the name of the cider said in English in uh, the English-speaking world as Kopperberg and is very popular, at least in the UK, is at least partly related to this mine we're going to be talking about today. Can I tell you a funny comment on, or not funny, but an interesting comment on Copperberg cider? Yes, please do. So uh, Copperberg was quite popular in the UK, as you said, and I'd like to drink it sometimes. But the thing is, whenever I ordered it and I pronounced it in Swedish, the way it sounds, could I have a Copperberg, please? the people working in the restaurants and bars wouldn't understand what I meant. So I had to pronounce it the way it's pronounced in the UK. Just could I have a Copperberg, please? Which just in your brain as a Swedish person, I'm like, I'm deliberately mispronouncing a a Swedish word so that it's understood in a different context. I've always just found it really weird. Yeah, and so to honour this, I will say Copperberg throughout this episode and you say Copper Bay. Yeah. (laughs) We wanted to dedicate an episode to this for two reasons. First of all, mining was, and arguably still is, a very important industry in Sweden. Mining, especially mining of iron ore, will crop up again and again as something that influenced or was important in Swedish history. 
and we've talked about it in our very early episodes as well. Second of all, the Great Copper Mountain Mine is by some measures considered to be the world's oldest limited company that is still operating. We have tried to verify that fact and found it almost impossible, mainly because records from the early Middle Ages are very scattered. But even if it's not the oldest, it is still a very old company with a very interesting history. Yes, it is. And we're not going to cover all of that, but rather focus on what happens during the period that we've now reached in the podcast, i.e. the late 1200s and early 1300s. We left our chronology in the last episode in 1319, when young Magnus Eriksson became joint king of Sweden and Norway. And what we will cover in this episode will take some steps back and a few steps forward, but nonetheless, we're in this rough period. The Great Copper Mountain Mine is located about one kilometer southwest of the town Falun, hence why it's sometimes called Falun Mine. Falun is a town in the county of Dalarna in central Sweden. The county borders Norway to the west and sits north of the two great lakes, Vänern and Vietnam. Dalarna is sometimes referred to as the Sweden of Sweden, this is partly due to the fact that during the era of Romantic nationalism in the late 1800s, many prominent painters lived and worked in Dalarna, depicting life there as quintessentially Swedish. Dalarna also sits not really in the middle of the country, but in, in a middle-ish region. It's not very far north and not very far south, it's not one of the regions that, like Skåne, has changed hands over the years, but rather it's always been Sweden. So I guess it's a bit of a happy medium, happy average of Sweden. It's also home to the Dala horse, a little uh, wooden figurine, uh, of which there is a 25 feet tall version in the Scandinavian Heritage Park in North Dakota, which one of our lovely reviewers mentioned way back in the summer of 2020. And we love that fact. Yeah, we need to go. <laughs> we need to go. Uh, I don't know what else there is in North Dakota. I'm sure there's lots of cool things. So we'll go, go there and uh, see this 25 feet tall dollar horse. And North Dakota was, at least five, six, seven years ago, one of the world's largest centers for training air traffic controllers, because one of my friends nearly went there to learn to be an air traffic controller. Um, so, yeah, that's one of two reasons yeah. to go to North Dakota. If, if any of our listeners are more familiar with North Dakota, let us know other things that it's famous for or... Uh, uh, what you can see there, then please do. Yeah, and one of the few American states with less people living there than live in Sweden as oh. well. I think there's only one or two million people who live in North Dakota. Really? So. Well, we'll feel right at home then. Yeah. I mean, I've only been to California and New York, and man, there's a lot of people there. Yeah, 762,000 people. Ah. Stockholm is bigger than North Dakota. Well, it'll be nice and roomy. Yeah, roomy. Back to the mine. About back to the mine. Mining ceased on the original site back in 1992, but the area is today a UNESCO World Heritage Site with a museum that you can go and visit. 
However, the company that operated the mine, Stora Copper Bears Bearslag, was bought by another company called Stora, which is still in operation, although mainly working within the wood, paper, and pulp industry. Nonetheless, they still produced some products that were associated with the mine, like Farlögrödfär, a red paint that was originally made using a residual product from the mining that gave the paint its red colour. As we'll see, it's hard to say when the company was actually founded originally, but it's likely to be around the 1280s, which make it the world's oldest limited or shareholding company. These are called Aktiebolag in Swedish, usually shortened to AB at the end of the word. Yeah, so AB is like in English LTD. Yeah, so it'll be Saab AB. Yeah. Like you said, it's difficult to say when the company was founded because there are no records of when mining began on the site. We have read sources that cite archaeological and geological studies, and they all more or less indicate that mining was likely done at the site by the 1080s, but not likely done before 850. Objects containing copper traced to be from the area have been found on Gotland, among other places, and dated to the 10th century. Yeah, so mining was definitely done in the area around that sort of time, but when the company was founded mm. officially, nobody really knows. And that's because initially mining was done by locals in a non-organised, small-scale, ad hoc fashion. Unlike areas further south, this isn't the most fertile land for farming, and so farmers likely needed something else to add income to their subsistence farming. In that sense, they conducted mining a bit like lots of Swedes conducted forestry. It was done whenever they needed a bit of something else to sell or use to make certain products. Because in this area, the ore, which is the naturally occurring rock, or rather sediment, that you make copper from, lies very close to the surface of the earth. Uh, these locals could do this on a whenever-you-feel-like-it basis because it was so close to the surface, they didn't need huge infrastructure or deep mines to get started. So locals would go out and about, gather the ore, which could be spotted because it makes the soil a reddish color, and brought it home to be burnt in a small bloomery, which is a small metallurgic furnace. A uh, new word that I've learned researching this episode. Good. And we saw some of this practice as far back as our episodes on the Bronze Age, since bronze is produced in a bit of a similar fashion by treating and heating up naturally occurring rock sediment. Exactly. And for decades, or even centuries, this was nothing more than a small-scale peasant enterprise, albeit slightly unusual, done in an unknown backwater of a country in the outskirts of Europe, as the book Tusen år vid Stora Kopparberget, A Thousand Years at the Great Copper Mountain, puts it. Yes, and calling it a backwater is perhaps a slight exaggeration, as the area wasn't completely cut off from the rest of society. It had connections, in particular in terms of trade with Uppsala during the Viking Age, but it was only as the Swedish state grew in the High Middle Ages and into the late 1200s and early 1300s that Dala became much more incorporated into a defined Sweden that you could place on a map. 
During the reign of King Magnus III, or Magnus Lodlos, as we call him in Swedish, so that's 1275 to 1290, uh, there was a move to a more professional mining operation. People had clearly seen that there was a profit to be made in the mine, and Swedish noblemen, along with merchants from Lübeck, began to take an interest in the Great Copper Mountain. The merchants in particular were important because they began selling the copper further away on the European continent and in turn also brought in more advanced technologies from elsewhere in Europe. This is all part of those giant webs of trade networks that we have mentioned a fair bit since Bjarjal's time. It's also from King Magnus's reign that we get the first written document that mentions the Great Copper Mountain Mine. This is from 1288, to be precise. The record states that in exchange for a large estate, the Bishop of Vesteros has bought a share in the mine. This share means that he's set to get 12.5% of the profit from all the stuff that the mine produces. This is very interesting because it's the oldest evidence of how the mine was run. It was run as a business where several people were involved and owned parts of the whole. This is, of course, very common today. It is, in essence, what we call a shareholding company or a limited company where you can buy shares on the stock exchange. But at the time, in the 1280s, this was extremely unusual. It's the first record of this that we have in Sweden, and it wouldn't become common practice until many centuries later. The way this was done in practice in the Middle Ages was that a small number of men literally mountain men, operated as independent miners. Eventually, they would come to be under the supervision of a royal bailiff, but nonetheless, they were not employed as such. Instead, each bearman owned a part in the mining business, so to say, and these shares meant they each took turns mining and whatever ore they had mined during their period of using the mine was theirs to keep or sell or trade. Being a bassman was a privileged position, in a sense that they were almost their own kind of business nobility. Uh, they got to carry a sword, a shield, a hat and gloves, all signs of high status in the 12 and 1300s. Yes, because this has really moved on from the time of the local farmer digging something out of the ground because he just wanted to make a new spoon. If the Great Copper Mountain had risen in prominence during the reign of Magnus III, it was during the time of his namesake and grandson, Magnus Ericsson, when the mine would become a matter of royal importance. By the 1300s, the production of copper had become a vital national resource. King Magnus, who was only three years old when we saw him elected as king in our last episode, will eventually grow up and be king for real. Spoilers, by the way. And in 1347, more spoilers, he actually visits the mine and gives it a letter of royal privilege. This is to state the rights and the obligations of the mine. This is because Magnus realises that there's quite simply too much money to be made from the mine to just leave it alone doing its own thing. Most importantly, the royal privilege gives the crown a grip on the mine and a share of the profits. This is important because Magnus, for reasons we'll cover in future episodes, is in desperate need of cash. 
Taking more control of the mine works out quite well, and for the coming century, large parts of state revenue will come from the mining operations at the Great Copper Mountain. The Crown doesn't own the whole company, but they have a stake in it, and sort of a first-come, first-served royal privilege. However, the privilege wasn't just beneficial for King Magnus and the Swedish state. It actually worked out quite well for the basemen and merchants connected to the mine as well. These aren't just kicked out because the king gets involved. As we said, the area around the Great Copper Mountain isn't the most fertile farmland in Sweden, and it was struggling to sustain such a large business. Basic necessities of life in medieval Sweden, like grain, hops, butter, salt, cloth, wool, and of course herring, had to be bought from elsewhere because what could be made there locally was not enough to support the growing mine. It was fine when it was just a local farmer hacking some rock out of the ground, but now it's growing into a real industry and these people need to be fed and clothed. The miners also need ox to help pull the heavy rocks. And again, the local supply was not enough. They needed to go to the ox shop. Yes, yeah. I wonder if they could buy ox on finance and say, this ox with two lovely horns and the capacity to pull 450 kilograms of rocks per week could be yours for just a monthly repayment of 1.2 copper coins. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, Is the- there a used ox market as well? No, I think they used them, sadly, till old, they collapsed old, old and gra- then they ate them. Old granny ox worth half a copper coin a month. The royal privilege basically exempted the people connected to the mine from any trade regulations. It also allowed for a system whereby the basemen could buy the stuff they needed, like a new ox, buy it first and then wait and pay until they had the profit of the sale of their copper, uh, which goes to show how profitable the mining was if merchants and traders were comfortable giving uh, such a respite. Uh, It also shows that these were trusted and reliable businessmen. Uh, They weren't going to run off without paying. Hence why they could buy an ox on finance without uh, having to pay everything up front. Exactly. The royal privilege was extended with a royal charter on mining a few years later, and this royal charter regulated the mining all the way up until the 1600s. So uh, they did it so well they didn't need to improve on it for 300 years. Don't fix what ain't broken. So what did they actually do? What did the work look like? Well, it's really from the time of King Magnus Eriksson that we have more detailed records of the operation of the mine. Most of the early mining was done in what's called open pit mining or open cast mining. Uh, Without getting too technical, uh, this is when you mine closer to the surface as opposed to digging tunnels and mining hundreds of meters underground. The Great Copper Mountain actually isn't really a mountain, to be honest. It's more like a big hill, and the ore was lying relatively close to the surface, as we said, so there's no need to mine very far below the surface, so you can do this open pit mining. 
Yes, and uh, I'm not sure if this is where I surprise also with another story, but I've been to an open cast mine before. <laughs> of course you have. At the, the, I've been to Weeper in the Cape York Peninsula in Queensland, northern Australia, um, where we were on holiday up there and we went to see an open cast mine. And I think where we saw these giant dumper trucks and I think the uh, the tires, just the tires on these giant dumper trucks were 10000 Australian dollars each. And um, it, it's a bauxite mine. And uh, yeah, we nearly moved there. Well, not nearly moved there, but my dad was uh, said, oh, you could definitely come and work here as a health and safety type person. And they would have paid for my university and everything because mining is such a huge business yeah. in Northern Australia. And it meant as much uh, to the community in the Great Copper Mountain as well in Sweden at this time. So, yep, if you ever want to go visit a mine, Queensland is uh, one of the places in the world to go to. So hello to all our lovely Queensland. Queensland listeners, um, I have been there. So, and not only that, I've been all the way up, went to the most northern and most eastern points of Australia when we went there. Nearly, gosh, twenty years ago now. Well, that's that's excellent. I love that you have this hands-on uh, experience of open pit mining. Yeah, exactly. And then uh, we went up to the Torres Strait Islands. We went uh, Thursday Island was the one we stayed on. I have a Thursday Island basketball uh, top nice. that is now. 15 sizes too small for me because I was about 13 when we went. But, yep, that was fun. <laughs> Should we leave the Australian uh, mines and Australia in general and go back to the Great Copper Mountain? Yeah, sadly. Maybe our listeners are wondering how they found the ore in the first place. Well, basically, like we mentioned briefly, you just start digging where you can see the ore in the ground because it makes the soil go a, a reddish color so it's it's actually quite quite easy yeah so the very first farmers would have been looking for somewhere mm. to plant their flowers or potatoes or other things that didn't exist in 800s sweden yeah and um and then just think oh wait this soil is red wait a minute i'm gonna take it home and heat it up and see what yeah, happens well, well, underneath the soil there's this rocky thing and yeah that's how they found it and miners would light up huge fires that heated up the mountain or hill and the heat from the fire made the mountain porous and softer which meant that thin slices of rock could be broken loose with a wedge and a sledgehammer it was then time for something called smelting, a complicated procedure that took a lot of time. Again, Orson and I are into history, so understanding of mining engineering, despite my first-hand experience of Weeper in Queensland, is limited. So this is a very basic description of the process. Smelting was a process to roast the ore like a good coffee, and in order to make it more or less free from sulphur and make it more pliable. Not only did this take weeks, it had to be done carefully, and it produced a lot of smoke. So over time, the smoke emanating from the smelting became a bit of a trademark of Farland and the Great Copper Mountain region as a whole. Yeah, and that was just round one of smelting. After this first roasting, uh, so to say, smaller pieces were taken into huts where the smelting continued until you had produced a sort of in-between product called Schersteen. Uh, we're terribly sorry, we tried to look it up, but we simply could not find an English translation for that. Uh, it's not too important though, because the process didn't stop there. Uh, you then roasted that product again until you eventually had raw copper. 
And raw copper isn't really useful for anything in itself. It's just a piece of metal that you then have to make into something. But raw copper was the end of the process at the Great Copper Mountain. It was then sold on to other places where they would actually make products from it. In fact, the raw copper from the Great Copper Mountain would often end up far from the soil where the ore was first found. Most mountain men, these independent miners, took their raw copper to Vesteros on the shores of Lake Merlaren, and then onwards to Stockholm. From here, a substantial quantity was sold to merchants from Lübeck, who in turn sold it on to producers of goods made from copper down in Lübeck, Hamburg, Antwerp and Amsterdam. So it's really spreading all over the southern shores of the Baltic Sea and beyond. So there you go, a lot of heating up rock. That's the work that was done here in a nutshell. And that labor process didn't change much for centuries. Um, this digging by hand and smelting and so on was the way the mine operated throughout the Middle Ages and beyond. As we've seen, the Great Copper Mountain Mine was this company that people owned shares in, which was a novel way of operating a business in Sweden back in the 12 and 1300s. This structure also had an impact on how the day-to-day -day running of the mine worked. Each Bergman or mountain man had an individual share of the mine and was an individual share owner of the mine. And he took turns, because it was always a he, took turns in mining and owning the ore that he had mined during his period. To become a Bergsman, you had to join the Berg's Lag, literally the mountain team, the corporation running the mine. Unfortunately, we've not been able to find out exactly how you first joined a Burslag. If you were paid, if you were elected, or inherited your place, or won it in combat, <laughs> or a time trial, who can, uh, who can smelt the most copper in a week or something. That would be excellent. But uh, the, the structure of the mine, I guess it's a bit like having a timeshare in a holiday home, but in a mine. Yeah, just like that. And this also meant there was no permanent labour force working in the mine. Each Bergman was in charge of hiring people temporarily to work during his period of mining. They didn't do it all themselves, of course, they had help. I'm, I'm sure some people just rotated and worked all year round mm. and worked for each individual Bergman as they rotated, but some people would have come in just as and when. And that's because mining was incredibly hard work on a personal level. Everything from actually breaking the ore loose from the mountain with a wedge and a sledgehammer to the smelting process was a tough process physically. This, combined with the rough living conditions around the Great Copper Mountain, meant that it was sometimes difficult to recruit these temporary workers. In fact, in 1347, the king of the time and the council gave asylum or amnesty to criminals if they agreed to go and work in the mine. Wow, that's an indication that they're desperate for labourers. Yes, and it also uh, coincidentally means that they brought in a law that outlawed workers from carrying weapons at the same time. Or maybe that was just a big coincidence. Uh, yeah, or a health and safety precaution. Uh, either way, local farmers also took up seasonal work at the mine. As we've mentioned three times now, the area around Great Copper Mountain isn't too fertile, so this access to seasonal work albeit incredibly hard work, was a welcome extra income to farmers and their families. Whilst it was hard work for the people actually doing the job, it also made some people incredibly rich. 
Baird's men and merchants built nice houses around the mine, which made the area incredibly diverse. They needed uh, workers and cooks and nannies and all those kind of things. And so around the mine, there was everything from temporary huts for the poor seasonal laborers to a grand estate built for the king's bailiff, who was the monarch's eyes and ears at the complex. Some Baird's men even made enough money from their share of the mine to build second homes in Stockholm. A bit like the landed gentry in the UK with their rural estates in the country and then houses in London, I suppose. Or the Swedish nobility was the same. (laughs) The mine didn't just make individuals rich, it benefited the entire national economy. In fact, the importance of the Great Copper Mountain to the Swedish national economy is extraordinary. To really understand why it was so important, we must remind ourselves of just how much copper was produced here. I found one source, Illustrerad Uppslagsbok för familjen, which is an old encyclopedia, that said that during the Middle Ages, the mine was responsible for two-thirds of Europe's entire copper production. Uh, Now, I've not been able to corroborate that, and I do not want to state it as a fact. But regardless, the output of raw copper from the mine was staggering. Yeah, I'm not sure an old family encyclopedia is necessarily the best source, but it shows you the great general scale yeah and and most other sources or all other sources also talk about uh the great output from the mine without putting it into actual numbers yeah and that's because the production at the mine continued to be high and its importance to sweden continued now we're not going to skip too far ahead in the timeline and talk about things way ahead in the future but just to mention that even though the great copper mountain is really rising to prominence now during the reign of king magnus ericsson it really sees its heyday in the 1600s during what's known as stormaxtid or Sweden's Great Power Era, or the Swedish Empire. Without copper from this mine, Sweden's war machine just wouldn't have been able to march across Europe in the way that it will do in the future. Indeed, and it is quite extraordinary that it stood the test of time and managed to adapt in the way it did over the course of almost a thousand years, and that it's still around, albeit not as a mine, but the company is still around. The Great Copper Mountain was Sweden's first, and for a long time, only business of international importance. Long before the first IKEA bookshelf or H&M blouse or streaming on Spotify, it was copper that put Sweden on the world's business map. And well into the early 1900s, Stora Kopparbergslags AB, the then registered company name, was Sweden's largest company without competition. Yeah, it's unbelievable, really, the changes that Sweden has seen in those 600 years. Yeah. And this company is still like, we're making all the copper for Sweden. <laughs> and yeah, that's slightly more of a Norwegian accent, but it will do. Darland is close to Norway. But why did everybody get so excited about copper? I mean, not many of us think of copper these days. 
so how could copper be the basis for one of the world's oldest companies? Well, of course, uh, the simple answer is because it was used in everything. We're looking at it from our modern perspective where we don't see it too much, but back in the day, it was used in everything, and we mean everything. Copper is great because it locks heat in, so it's good at making cooking utensils out of, which might be what many of us associate it with. And it's also biostatic, which means that it inhibits the growth of multiplication of organisms. It's hygienic, basically. Not that they necessarily thought of that or even knew about it in the Middle Ages, but they did grasp that copper is great for making some things. Later on, it's great for building ships, because barnacles don't attach to it. Copper was also used in cannons, in bathtubs to make musical instruments, used to make roofs, fastenings, doorknobs, locks, and again its biostatic qualities made it perfect for making big tubs to produce salts and brew alcohol in. And later, when gunpowder was invented, copper was ideal for the production of that too. So yeah, good for everything, essentially. And copper is still used extensively today, not just in uh, coins of very low value in the UK. In fact, sometimes it's used for the same reasons as they used it in the Middle Ages. We still use it in ships, in roofs, and make cooking utensils from it. But today we also use it in wires and cables, in electronics, and in engine parts, because copper also has uh, really good conductivity properties. So yeah, an all-round super useful product. And that made the Great Copper Mountain one of the first building blocks in the history of Swedish economy and business. But before we say goodbye and move on to the next episode, we're going to tell you the story of Fet Mats. Fet means fat in Swedish, so... Fat mats, fat mats. What had he got to do with the Great Copper Mountain? Well, Fat Mats was actually born Mats Israelsson sometime in the mid-1600s in the village of Sverdsjö, close to the Great Copper Mountain in a poor family. Sverdsjö, by the way, means sword lake. Cool place. Now, Mats's father died when he was still a child, and like many in the local area, Mats took up work in the mine. Unfortunately, in 1677, there was an accident in the mine that killed Mats and buried him in the mine. Now, that in itself, sadly, was nothing unusual. Mining was, and still is, a dangerous job. And history would likely not have paid much or any attention to Fat Mats if that was the end of his story. So it isn't the end of his story. Well, I suppose it literally is the end of his story for him since he died. Well, yes and no, because the incident that killed him also buried him in the mine. 42 years later, on the 2nd of December 1719, right near the end of the Great Northern War, mm. uh, new labourers are digging in that same part of the mine where the accident occurred 42 years earlier, and they find Fat Matz's body. They've likely forgotten or never knew that there was an accident in that part of the mine some four decades earlier, as they would likely be young adults themselves. Now, what's extraordinary is that Fat Matz's body had been perfectly preserved. Both his legs had been severed from his body, um, sadly for him, but his face, hands and clothes showed no signs of decomposition. It was as if he'd just laid down to sleep a few hours earlier, not 42 years previously. 
This caused some confusion in the area, since they thought that Fat Mats was someone from their time, but they weren't missing anyone. There hadn't been an accident recently, and they didn't just let random people wander into the mine and go and get lost. It wasn't until an old lady called Margaret Oll's daughter from a nearby farm recognised Fat Matt as her old fiancé who had been killed in an accident 42 years earlier. And it wasn't until then that his identity was established. So I don't know why she was necessarily looking at the body. I guess it was out on display and say, does anybody know who this dead guy is? Yeah, I, th- I think so. That is That is pretty grim, though. It's pretty grim. And what they didn't know at the time was that when the accident happened, that particular part of the mine had been filled with water, and it was the high concentration of copper sulphate in the water that had preserved Fat Matz's body. And perhaps understandably, Fat Matz's body became a bit of a local curiosity, a dead celebrity. He was put on display in the local church of all places, and it wasn't until 1934, so 257 years after he died, that he was finally buried in the local cemetery. Was he on display in the church all that time? Well, he Where had, was his body? They had moved him around a bit. He'd been on display, and then they put him in a box in the attic. And then... They, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like he's some sort of Christmas decoration. And then they brought him out again. And then they kept him under the floor of the church, I think, until they finally, yeah, in 1934, just said all right, it's a bit uh, sort of uh, unpleasant and unethical that we just keep this dead body around. Let's give him a proper burial. Yeah, yeah, wow. And by the 1930s, his body had sort of stiffened a bit because the body is described as like a rock in contemporary sources. His reputation even reached far beyond Sweden. He's become an international (laughs) rock body celebrity. And perhaps thanks to the long-established trade connections that linked the mine to Germany, Fat Matz's story became a bit of a favourite topic for German romanticist writers in the early 1800s. Archim von Arnhem, Johann Peter Hebel, Friedrich Luchert and E.T.A. Hoffmann, he's always on time, wrote stories about him. What a life! Or really, I suppose, what a death for Fat Mats. What an afterlife. Well, if you can't be famous in life, be famous in death. Wow. I guess the story shows both the dangers of working in the mine and how it is this certain natural composition of the soil that makes this place special in the first place. Uh, I mean, I have to ask, though, because I think a lot of our listeners are wondering, why was he called Fat Matt? Well, we don't know. What? Yeah, it's just he's called that in all the sources, but no one ever explains why or even state that he was particularly large or overweight, although presumably the name implies that. I don't know if 1700s... I don't know if 18th century Swedes were just into fat shaming or whatever was going on, but yeah, he's Fat Mats. No other explanation given. Well, I guess Fat Mats is still better than Eamon the Slimy. Well, uh, maybe. Yeah. Uh, and on that note, all that remains is for us to say thank you for listening to this episode all about the history of the Great Copper Mountain Mine. See you in two weeks when we continue our journey through Swedish history.
Yes, this was a very fun episode. Um, hope you enjoyed it. In the meantime, follow us on social media. We're at Flatpack Sweden on Twitter and just search for a Flatpack History of Sweden on Facebook. If you want to write us an email, our address is flatpackhistorysweden at gmail.com. Please send us emails and messages if you don't want to do a review. We love hearing from you. We've had loads of people recently getting in touch, telling us their family stories, especially from North America, where people have been letting us know about their various uh, connections back to Sweden and why their families moved all around the world and why they're listening to the podcast. So let us know why you're listening. Why do you like Swedish history? Yeah, we appreciate all the messages that cannot be stated enough. And also visit our website, A Flat Pack History of Sweden, or one word, A Flat Pack History of Sweden.com, where we got maps and family trees, and we have a list of all the Swedish phrases and lots of other stuff. Yeah, so, and once again, thank you to Mikael Schankman from Scandinavian Histories Podcast for the promo at the start of this episode. And if you're listening to us because you heard our promo on the Scandinavian Histories Podcast, welcome to you. Yeah, until next time, take care. Bye-bye. Hey, Dale.